As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'd been searching for Terry Norman for years before I finally tracked him down to Asheville, North Carolina, where he was working as a car salesman in a little building off the highway. This was in 2005, and I was working as a reporter for an alt-weekly in Cleveland called The Free Times. I was writing a piece on the 35th anniversary of the shootings at Kent State that left four student protesters dead on May 4, 1970. I was searching for the truth about what really happened that day. I believe that if anybody knows the objective truth about the Kent State shootings, it's this one guy, Terry Norman. So I drove my car from Akron to Asheville and stopped in at the Honda dealership. He wasn't in. So I went to the address I had for him up on the mountain. He lived in a house near the top at the end of a private drive with one of those closed and locked steel gates at the bottom. I parked on the road a ways from the gate and waited. I listened to the radio for an hour or so and started to nod off, tired from the long drive, when a truck appeared in my rear view, barreling down the road at top speed, sending dust into the air. 
At the last moment, the driver slammed on his brakes and stopped beside me. The driver got out. It was Terry in a tan jacket and Panama hat. He looked displeased. Who are you? What do you want? He shouted. I went to open my door, and as I did, Terry jumped back. His hands went to his right jacket pocket. I stopped moving and raised my hands. I didn't know if there was a gun in that pocket, but Terry definitely had a gun on him when things went south at Kent State. I just want to talk, I said. No, he said. You're now stalking me. I'll leave. Terry backed away and I drove off his mountain. Never saw him again. But I think of him, often. I hope he tells someone what really happened at Kent State that day. He's old now, about 72. The truth, if such a thing really exists in this world, could very well die with him. This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I went to college at Kent State. I even taught there for a bit. English comp, the great and dangerous front line of every English department. My view of the shootings is very subjective because I spent so much time there. To me, it's a very big deal. 
I'm aware of the shadow it casts over the school to this day. I'm not sure how the rest of the world views it, or how big of a deal it is outside of Kent. I hope it's kind of a big deal. After all, we're talking about our government killing four unarmed students. But in case you've never heard the details, here's what happened. Or here's what we believe happened. By the spring of 1970, public support for the Vietnam War was tanking faster than the Cleveland Browns' defense. We kept sending our kids over there, and they kept getting killed, and there was no end in sight. We had this president, Richard Nixon, who promised to put an end to the war if we put him in the White House, and then we did, in 1968, and he just kind of forgot about that promise. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Then, in November 1969, the American public learned about the My Lai Massacre. We don't like to talk about that event. It's not in a lot of history books. What happened was we sent army soldiers into this village in South Vietnam and, well, they went fucking crazy. They killed upwards of 500 unarmed men, women, and children. Some of the soldiers gang-raped the women as well, some as young as 12. And if there's one surefire way to lose moral support for an unnecessary war, it's probably killing and raping kids. No way to spin that. Now, fast forward a couple months and this D-bag in the White House decides he's going to invade Cambodia now. And students who got deferments for college were like, fuck me, this war is never going to end and they'll send me over there to die too. Now, by this time, all the major liberal universities had organizations like Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, on campus. After Nixon invaded Cambodia, these organizations staged mass demonstrations. Time magazine called it a nationwide student strike. Nixon, he he was no dummy. He needed to quell this rebellion. He had to bring down the hammer and make an example of these kids and silence all these hippies before they waged a revolution. Nixon got the support he needed from Ohio Governor Jim Rhodes. Rhodes, this fucking guy. Man, dirty as the day is long, and he loved his executions. Boy, howdy. And he he could be bought, as anyone could see when he pardoned boxing promoter Don King. What? Don King was in trouble? What'd he do? Oh, you know, nothing big. Just stomped a guy to death. Only in America, right? Anyway... Rhodes hated hippies as much as Nixon did, and so when protesters at Kent State threatened to burn down the ROTC building, he sent in the National Guard. And instead of rubber bullets, they loaded their guns with the real kind. And then the kids at Kent State burned that ROTC building to the fucking ground. It was the perfect mix of righteous indignation and ammunition. Did Rhodes know what was going to happen next? No, not for sure. Did he want something terrible to happen? You bet he did. On May 3rd, Governor Rhodes gave a speech in which he called the student protesters brown shirts. Maybe that's familiar to you. It's what the neocons have started calling supporters of Bernie Sanders. Brown shirts are Nazis. The next day, Monday, May 4th, 1970, student protesters at Kent State staged a demonstration at the Victory Bell. Picture a long green yard with a hill full of early yellow daffodils. About 2,000 students gathered there at noon, and someone rang the bell and the speeches began. Companies A and C and Troop G of the Ohio National Guard formed a phalanx and told the students to leave. The students were told they would be arrested if they did not disperse. In response, 
some students began throwing rocks at the National Guardsmen. The Guardsmen began firing tear gas, but the wind picked up and pulled the smoke away from the students. Finally, the National Guard moved forward with bayonets attached to the end of their M1 rifles. They pushed the young protesters up the field of daffodils and around Taylor Hall. Then, for some reason, the Guardsmen ended up boxed in by an athletic field with a chain-link fence. Both the guardsmen and the students became disordered. There was a growing panic and a sense of fear on both sides. At this point, the National Guard begins marching back up Blanket Hill behind Taylor Hall. It's here, on Blanket Hill, above the Prentice Dorm parking lot, that all hell broke loose at precisely 12.24 p.m. Shots rang out. At least 29 of the 77 guardsmen fired their weapons at the students. The shooting lasted 13 seconds. When it was over, nine students were seriously wounded, and four lay dying on the ground. Allison Krauss and Jeffrey Miller had been there for the protest, but Sandra Schuer and William Schroeder were just walking to class. Singer Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders was there. She wrote about the event in her autobiography, then I heard that tat 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 sound. I thought it was fireworks. An eerie sound fell over the common. The quiet felt like gravity pulling us to the ground. Then a young man's voice. They fucking killed somebody. Everybody slowed down and the silence got heavier. The ROTC building, now nothing more than a few inches of charcoal, was surrounded by National Guardsmen. They were all on one knee and pointing their rifles at us. Then they fired. By the time I made my way... Where I could see them, it was still unclear what was going on. The guardsmen themselves looked stunned. We looked at them and they looked at us. They were just kids, 19-year-olds, like us, but in uniform, like our boys in Vietnam. One young man later described that day like this. All I can tell you is that it completely and utterly changed my life. I was a white hippie boy, and then I saw exit wounds from M1 rifles out of the back of two people I knew. Two of the four people who were killed, Jeffrey Miller and Allison Krauss, were my friends. We were all running our asses off from these motherfuckers. It was total, utter bullshit. Live ammunition and gas masks. None of us knew, none of us could have imagined. They shot into a crowd that was running away from them. I stopped being a hippie, and I started to develop this idea of devolution. That young man stayed true to his word. In fact, he devoted his life to this idea of devolution. That young man was Gerald Casale, future bassist and singer of Devo. So here's the rub. There were thousands of witnesses present for the Kent State shootings. You'd think that with so many witnesses, there would be an accepted truth for what happened that day, but 50 years later, fucking nobody can agree on how it started. Speak to some of the guardsmen and... They'll tell you they only fired on the students after some student fired at them. Talk to the survivors, and some will say that it appeared that the guard was given an order to fire. We'll get to old Terry Norman in a moment. He's, um, he's the wild card in all this mayhem. For the time being, consider the question at hand. Is there one ultimate truth about what happened at Kent State on May 4th, 1970? To find the answer to that question... We first have to answer this. What is truth? What is truth? Who said that? Does it stir up memories of Sunday school? It should. 
In the book of John, we learn that Jesus was arrested for sorcery and taken to court to appear before Pontius Pilate. Pilate is all condescending and says something like, So, I hear you're king of the Jews. And Jesus is like, Well, you said it, not me. But then he goes on to say, To this end have I been born, and to this end am I come into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. To which Pilate said, Well, what is truth? That single line became a rallying cry for one famous philosopher who said, In the whole New Testament there appears but a solitary figure worthy of honor, Pilate, the Roman viceroy, the noble scorn of a Roman before whom the word truth was shamelessly mishandled, enriched the New Testament with the only saying that has any value, and that is at once its criticism and its destruction. What is truth? Ladies and gentlemen, we arrive at last to Friedrich Nietzsche. Little Friedrich was born in 1844 in what is now a part of Germany. His father was a Lutheran pastor, and the church was a very big deal back then. When he was five, Nietzsche's father died suddenly, and then his younger brother passed away too. How can you blame him for later saying, God is dead? He was a lackluster student in school, but enjoyed reading the kind of subversive poets and writers that his instructors feared to teach. When he was 20, Nietzsche enrolled at the University of Bonn to become a minister himself. But after one semester, he lost his faith. The stuff he was learning in history didn't support the stuff he was learning in theology. He wrote a letter to his sister explaining his disillusionment. Hence the ways of men part, he wrote. If you wish to strive for peace of soul and pleasure, then believe. If you wish to be a devotee of truth, then inquire. His focus shifted to philosophy and he never looked back. I want to look at Nietzsche's idea of perspectivism and how it relates to Kent State, but first I want to talk just a little bit about his sexuality. I find it interesting what influential people get up to in their private lives. Purient? Maybe. But I suspect that if we talked about sexuality more, it would take away some of the shame that gets tangled up in it, especially in this country that was founded by Puritans. See, Nietzsche was involved in a thruple relationship with another philosopher named Paul Ray and a female psychoanalyst named Lou Salome. The three were inseparable for a time, traveling together, sharing holidays. Both Paul and Friedrich proposed to Lou at different points. The three of them even tried to form a commune of like-minded individuals. But eventually Lou left when Nietzsche wouldn't stop with all the proposals. Around this time, Nietzsche contracted syphilis, and there's circumstantial evidence that he had visited both heterosexual and homosexual brothels. Sometime around the beginning of 1889, perhaps due to the effect of syphilis, Nietzsche went mad and never really got better. He died in August 1900. Today, first-year liberal arts students often write off Nietzsche as a nihilist who cared about nothing, like the bad guys in The Big Lebowski. But that's not really true. In fact, Nietzsche believed that nihilism was an existential crisis that humanity had to get through when faced with the realization that there is no meaning, no purpose in life beyond what we want to make up. He hoped that an educated society could move beyond nihilism and create a shared purpose to benefit humanity, something better than religion. 
Nietzsche rejected the idea that the basic building blocks of the universe are atoms. Instead, he believed that everything in the universe comes from the interaction of forces, which he called wills. The will to power is the strongest force, and it's the central drive of all humans. The need to harness and control our part of the world, even if it's only our home or our own mind. He also believed in perspectivism, the idea that there is no objective truth in this reality. He believed that everything was a matter of perspective. Maybe you believe Code Red is the best Mountain Dew. That may be true for you, you sick fucker. But for me, the best Mountain Dew is always classic Mountain Dew. But what's the truth? Which is really the best? I'm a man of average height, about 5 feet, 10 inches. To my 7-year-old daughter, I'm tall. That's a true statement. To Shaquille O'Neal, I'm not tall. Also a true statement. But we're talking about opinions or subjective perspective. Surely, certain facts are objectively true, right? The earth is round. The sun rises in the east. I'm James Renner. But Nietzsche doubted this. What is round? What is east? Who really is James Renner? Could those definitions change? Are they changing right now? And who decides so? If you have an interest in quantum mechanics, maybe your ears are perking up right now. Einstein understood a century ago that there are things in this universe that only become true in the presence of an observer, that reality itself is subjective. Consider the behavior of a polarized photon. It can have either a horizontal polarization or vertical polarization. When we observe it, it becomes either horizontally polarized or vertically so, like a flip of the coin. Flip, flip, it lands. We see that it's now heads or tails. Same with photons. But until we observe that photon, it's in what's called superposition, meaning it's neither up nor down and both at the same time, like the cat in Schrodinger's box, or like the end of my USB cable when I'm trying to plug it into the side of my laptop without looking. So we know that stuff like photons need an observer to become one thing or another. But there's still only one result, right? Either it ends up horizontal or vertical, and then, and then it's a fact, Jack. Well, turns out not so much. In fact, science has just proven that objective facts may not be so objective after all. There was this physicist, see, Eugene Wigner. He won the Nobel Prize and was kind of a big deal. Way back in 1961, he got to thinking about those photons, and, and he came up with a crazy thought. What would happen if he observed the observer? For this experiment, Wigner imagined putting a friend in the laboratory. His friend would be the one to observe and record a series of photons. He'd log them as either horizontal or vertical. The lab would have a window and Wigner would stand outside that window and observe his friend writing down his findings. Now his friend was a very stoic guy and so he wouldn't jump up and get excited every time he'd find a, a vertically polarized photon or anything. There'd be no way for Wigner to tell what his friend had discovered. Here's where it gets trippy. In his friend's reality, the photons would become either horizontally polarized or vertically. But in Wigner's reality, the photons would remain in superposition. And his dear friend would become entangled with the photons themselves. Meaning, 
As far as Wigner was concerned, it was still possible that his friend's findings were incorrect. If it helps, picture the friend in that other room peeking into Schrodinger's box. His friend now knows whether the cat is alive or dead. But from Wigner's point of view, it's still a toss of the coin. This remained just a weird thought experiment until last year, when Massimiliano Proietti, a scientist from Edinburgh, figured out a way to perform this experiment in real life using six photons. It seems to confirm the weirdest outcome of Wigner's theory, that two different realities can coexist, even if facts in the one conflict with facts in the other. It appears Nietzsche was onto something. We're likely living in a perspectivist universe. So what does this have to do with Kent State? Well, one of two things seems to be true. Either the National Guard reacted to someone in the group of protesters firing a gun, or they panicked and fired without provocation. The witnesses there that day cannot agree. The one person who would know for sure is the man among the protesters who had a gun, Terry Norman. Everyone else was just an observer, the scientist looking into the lab. Terry Norman is Eugene Wigner's friend. Terry Norman was a narc, a right-wing weirdo, who had been attending protest meetings as a spy and reporting what he heard to the police and FBI. He was on payroll. The feds paid him $125 a month for his information. He was always toting his camera along to these meetings, snapping pictures of protesters that the police could later use to identify subversive students. He was hidden among the protesters that fateful day at Kent State. He had his trusty camera with him. He also had his handgun. Immediately after the shooting ceased, a student named Harold Reed spotted Terry standing over the body of another student, gun in hand. Reed chased Terry around Taylor Hall where Terry found a group of guardsmen to protect himself. A local police detective named Tom Kelly arrived and took the gun from Terry. Turns out that detective knew Terry very well. Detective Kelly was the one Terry reported to with his tips. A couple things came out about that gun later. First, it had been reported stolen. Terry claimed he bought it off an Akron policeman. Also, Detective Kelly reported that the gun was still fully loaded and couldn't have been fired by Terry. The handgun took five bullets, and five bullets were still in it. Except, later, it was discovered that while there were indeed five bullets in the handgun, one of the bullets was different from the others. An interesting discrepancy when you considered the audio evidence that was found recently in archives. A student had been recording from the window of a nearby building and accidentally captured the shootings on tape. It's hard to tell for sure, but some people who have analyzed that tape are convinced that they hear four rapid shots just before the volley of shots by the National Guard. Following the Kent State shootings, Terry ended up in Washington, D.C., where he got a job with the Metro Police Department on a recommendation by Detective Kelly. He wasn't cut out for the job, though, and eventually ended up selling cars in Asheville and hiding from reporters. We don't know for sure how the Kent State shooting started. The truth is different for anyone you talk to. But maybe it doesn't even matter at this point. What matters is that four kids died that day. That's the legacy of Kent State and James Rhodes and the Ohio National Guard. So, on May 4th, take a minute and remember their names. Allison Krauss, Jeffrey Miller, Sandra Schuer, 
William Schroeder. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, Wooden Dice That Give an Artful Twist to Your Gaming Night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. (laughs) 